such a blessing just to be able to worship with you all. My heart's already been taken up to the third heaven through your prayers and song and words. So I, I love you. It's a blessing to be with you. I invite you to John chapter 12. We'll be in the last part of that chapter. While you're turning there, I want you to think about death. We don't think often of death. Sometimes we try to avoid thinking of death. But the Bible incentivizes our thinking often of our mortality. Uh, The death rate, 100% and holding steady. We all have an appointment with the grave. But I want you to think about an aspect of death that has touched us all. I want you to think about maybe even a more fond, if there is such a thing, aspect of death that has been happening in human history since Genesis chapter 3. Since death entered the human experience in chapter 3, humanity has been riveted by the last words, the final words of people before they pass into eternity. Last words for ill or for good have a way of sticking with us. And shaping our memories about a person and about a legacy. There's a fascinating and and very rewarding, deeply rewarding study of the last words of people in Scripture. You could trace that theme from the Old and the New Testament. It's not only fascinating, it is, as I said, deeply rewarding. Uh, Just two quick examples. Hebrews tells us about the final words of Jacob, the patriarch. We're told in Hebrews 11, as he was dying, he blessed the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. What a way to go. An old man, decrepit, literally in his last phrases, leaning on a staff, speaking the Lord's blessing over his posterity. But that phrase says, he worshiped. What a way to go. The next verse tells us the last words of Joseph, the instrument that God used, humanly speaking, to preserve his people alive. Hebrews eleven twenty two 22 says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Don't you bury me in Egypt. You take me to the promised land. Well, that didn't happen for another 400 years, so it shows faith in future grace. He believed that God would fulfill his good word to give the descendants of Abraham the promised land as their possession. So today, we're going to deal with some final words. They should stick with us. They're meant to stick with us. It's not the very last words of Jesus' earthly life that happened on the cross, and then post-resurrection, he gave some more words. But these are the final public words. These are the last words in John's gospel that Jesus gives to the world, and it's John, I believe, reflecting on the message of Jesus and then saying on his own part, John, a summary of Jesus' words. But John saves this passage for the end of John chapter 12 as Jesus' final witness to the world. This is his last word. This is what he wants you to know. This is what he wants you to remember. 
In fact, it's the last cry. That's the way our passage opens from Jesus until we hear one more cry when he's suspended on the cross and Matthew tells us he gives out a loud cry and then he gave up his spirit. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 44, tells us that Jesus cries out and says, he wants us to hear this. He wants us to remember this. He wants us to obey this. And gloriously, Jesus' last words are less about you and more about him. But as we'll see, John includes this passage so that we can see that every man's eternity swings on the fulcrum of Christ, the hinge of Jesus. He's the line of demarcation struck right down through the middle of every human heart. Well, with that in mind, please join me in John chapter 12. We'll pick up our reading in verse 44 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 50. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Let's pray together. Father, I'm pausing for prayer, not as space filler in our service so that we can get on to something else. But we're pausing now to worship you. We glory in Jesus. We praise the Son of God. We revel in your presence. As this passage tells us of the oneness of Jesus, to see Him is to see the Father. To hear Him is to hear the Father. We thank You for the, the way that Jesus, though God and Creator of the ends of the earth, humbled Himself and depended entirely on You, Father, during His earthly life, during His ministry that not one syllable fell from his lips that was not ordered by you for him to say. Thank you for that kind of meticulous obedience. And we thank you that his great heart bursts out of this passage. We worship him now 
We're not trying to pass time to get to the sermon. We are worshiping you, Jesus, that you came to save. That's your heart. That's your desire that you could have stayed in heaven. Every man would have been judged. But you came. You came. Thank you for stepping out of glory into the sin-torn world not to judge, but to save. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We glory in you. Thank you, Father, for the commandment you gave the Son to tell us eternal life. Thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. What a cost. What a sacrifice. What a gift. Thank you, Father, for your prerogative from eternity to dispatch the second person of the Trinity to come and be our Redeemer. Thank you, God. Thank you for the precious Holy Spirit who illumines to us what is so clearly written in your Word, but we wouldn't be able to understand. We couldn't receive it. We wouldn't grasp it. And we definitely wouldn't apply it unless the Holy Spirit Himself, God, the third person of the triune would illumine to us these precious realities of your word and of your son. We worship you, Lord. We praise you. We glory in you. We trust that Jesus has won our redemption, that he rose again from the dead after securing our pardon through his bloody sacrifice, and that he sits now in heaven and is receiving our prayers, sanctifying them. Thank you, God, for the risen Redeemer. And we thank you that he's coming again. We praise you that like Noah's day, building a boat, nobody believed wrath was on its way. Lord, we're building our boat. We, we, we're hiding in Jesus. We, we know that there's a storm coming. We know that you're going to do away with all this mess, all this brokenness. We know you're going to come and fix it and make it right. We, we look forward to your return, Jesus. And, and we ask one bold and specific request. Maranatha, come quickly, Jesus. Come back. This world is so messed up. There's so much rebellion, so much wrong. Jesus is not getting the worship that he deserves, Father. It's not right. Come back. Come fix. Come end all this. Come get the glory you deserve. And until then, Lord, make us faithful to commend him whom we cherish, to tell the world about this all-satisfying Redeemer. Fill us with the Spirit to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One point for today's sermon. Jesus is God's premier missionary. He is the great missionary. We could say in a sense, he's the only true missionary. I've changed the sermon title from months ago when I planned it to whatever it was, to Dylan in the text and the text dealing with me this week, to Jesus sent to save. That's our sermon title. It's really the same direction. Uh, I think it was something about eternal life <laughs> before, I, before I tweaked it. But Jesus sent to save, and our, our point is this. Jesus is God's premier missionary. A missionary, you all are familiar with that kind of 
terminology, that's somebody who's sent for the purposes of telling God's good news of salvation to a lost world, that's what I mean. Jesus is God's premier missionary. No one is a greater missionary than Jesus. No missionary has spanned a greater distance, traveled a greater distance. He came from heaven to earth. No, one, no missionary has more perfectly carried out the divine assignment, the calling on his life than Jesus. He is God's missionary par excellence. I want you to look at the uses of that repeated word in our passage, S-E-N-T, sent. Verse 44, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now I want you to look at that phrase long enough to realize that's a cumbersome way to put it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Your translation may render it just a little differently, but I trust that it has the word sent in however your translation renders verse 44. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but he could have said God. He could have said my Father. But he didn't say it that way. He said it in a more, as I said, cumbersome way, a more complicated way. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Look at verse 45. He who sees me sees God. No, that is true. That's not what Jesus said though. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but I'm speaking as God said to. No. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. The Father who sent me. This is saying something about the Father and this is saying something about the Son all squeezed down, compacted into that four-letter word, S-E-N-T, sent. Jesus is making a point. And he's making the point repeatedly, three times in our text. That's what the word sent is all about. That's why I'm saying our... One point for today's sermon is Jesus is God's premier missionary. Now, you know me enough to know I got some subpoints. But Jesus is making a point. Not just in this passage. I don't think it's an overstatement to say this is John's main idea. He wants you to believe and live. That's the series title. It comes straight from the purpose statement of the Gospel of John in John chapter 20. I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in His name. Believe and live. That's His main point. That's unequivocally, objectively, obviously true. John said so. But the way he gets at that point is two books in one. Today's passage ends the first book, the book of signs. And many who study the Gospel of John say it's really two books in one, the book of signs and the book of passion. The rest of the book is one week. In fact, we're already in the middle of that week. It's probably Wednesday. Jesus dies on Friday. John 1 to 12, book of signs. John 13 to 21, book of passion. And the big idea is Jesus is sent to do this. It's what John's gospel is all about. It's a huge theme in John's gospel. So today you got to do some finger licking 
and some page turning. Go back to John chapter 4. Let your eyes fall on verse 34. John 4, 34, and we're going to be going quickly. Jesus said to them, my food is to do God's will. No. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Skip over to John chapter 5. Let your eyes fall on verse 23. That all will honor the Son, 523, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor God. No, does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, he who hears my words and believes God, no, believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Skim down to verse 30, John 5, 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will. I seek God's will. No, I seek the will of him who sent me. That's the same word in John chapter 12. Now, Jesus uses another word that's also translated sent, and he uses it interchangeably with the word in John 12 and in the passages I just read. The word in our passage, pimpo, sent out one. The other word, apostello, apostle, sent out one. Jesus uses those words interchangeably, sometimes in the same verse to mean the same thing. Now, you've got to look quickly at verse 36. This is that other word. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. This is John 5, 36. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has apostello. He has sent me. Same thing in 537. You can skim it and see it at the very end of the verse. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. What a complicated way to say me. He could have said it in two letters. If you don't believe my word, you don't believe me. He didn't say that. He said, you don't believe him whom he sent. That's a really hard way to say that, Jesus. He's making a point. Skim over to chapter 6, verse 29. It's the apostello word. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What a strange way to say me. Go down to verse 38 of chapter 6. This is our word from chapter 12, same word, pimpo. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Skim to 644. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 657, apostello. 716, go over there. This is our word. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, it is God's. Nope, his who sent me. 718, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. What a hard way to say that, Jesus. The glory of the one who sent him. He is true and there's no unrighteousness in him. Skim to 728. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, 
teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. Skim to 729. Jesus cried out in the temple. He was teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. I've not come on my own initiative, but he who sent me is true whom, whom you do not know. Sorry, I said that's 28 and 29. Look at 733. For a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Quickly, 8.16, 8.16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. 8.18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. 8.26, I have many things to speak and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him I speak to the world. 8.29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what's pleasing to him. 8.42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. Okay, that's really clear. Don't say it again. Yes, I will. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Now go over to chapter 9. Why was the man born blind? Why did Jesus spit in his eyes? Why didn't Jesus say, be healed? Why did he, it's pretty, pretty nasty, right? Can I just dismount the platform for a moment? Come spit on the gym floor, rub it around a little bit, smear it all over your face. Would you appreciate that? Why did he do it that way? 9-4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. Jesus spits on the ground, puts the mud in the man's face. He goes and tells him to wash. 9-7, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. He sent him to a body of water called sent. He's making a point. If you go over to chapter 10, I won't read it, but you can skim verse 36. And you see the same theme. But let's fast forward to chapter 11, where we were just recently in our sermon series. Look at the end, 1142. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he cries out in prayer. Look at this. Head bowed, eyes closed. No. Does Jesus bow his head and close his eyes when he prays outside of Lazarus' tomb? No. He looks up, eyes open. And he prays like this. What does he say? 1142, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Come on out, Lazarus. That's the point. Our text, 12, 44 to 50, uses it three times. Go over to chapter 13. Let your eyes follow in verse 20. 13.20, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives God. No, nope. him who sent me. 14.24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 15.21, 15.21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know God. Nope. They do not know the one who sent me. 16.5, but now I am going to him who sent me. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus can't get this word out of his mouth. 
The whole chapter of John 17 is red letters, if your Bible does it that way, because it's all Jesus talking, but he's not talking to us, he's talking to the Father, and he says in 17.3, eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, period. No, no, that's not eternal life. Eternal life is not knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You have to know something about his sentness. 17.8, 17.21, 17.23, What I'm saying is this. John wants his readers to know at the very end of Jesus' public ministry, John 12, that Israel's rejection of him was not owing to any deficiency in his ability to deliver God's message to them. He is God's premier missionary. Not only in what he said, but in chapters 1 to 12, the book of signs, what he did. He is perfectly revealing God. And like Isaiah in last week's sermon text, Isaiah went to people, told them God's message as faithfully as he could, and they rejected him. Jesus comes to his own. John opens his book this way, John 1.11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He's the new Isaiah. He's the true and greater Isaiah. And he's standing in the middle of Israel as God's premier missionary, perfect, quintessential representative of God, telling nothing but the truth, and they don't receive him. He is the prophet like Moses, whom God promised in Deuteronomy to raise up. And the book of Acts tells us very clearly that Jesus is that prophet like Moses, Acts 3.16. And he was sent to bless us and turn us from our wicked ways. He's the sent out one. He is God's premier missionary. He perfectly represented God to mankind. That's the great weight of today's text. Because he perfectly represented God to mankind. Every person's eternity hinges on how they respond to him. In last week's text, Isaiah the prophet saw the glory of Christ, preached the message of Christ, and was rejected by his contemporaries. In this week's text, Jesus is the one who shines God's glory. If you see me, you see God. He's perfectly revealing God in all of God's splendor and beauty and excellence and greatness and gospel love. He is the exact representation of God. He's the perfect prophet of Hebrews chapter 1. God has spoken to us through His Son in these last days. And so, your eternity, John wants us to know at the end of Jesus' public ministry, this is what the passage is about, hinges on the fulcrum of Jesus. Our family did the infamous trip out west this summer. You know, you drive for hours and hours and you finally get to a destination, then you drive for hours and hours and hours through the out west. Well, we did that this summer, and it was a delightful trip. We made our way up and circled and kind of back down, and uh, we were out for 
for two weeks and uh, it was really a joyful time. But we had two conditions for the kids, have fun, don't complain. It's gonna be a lot of driving, all right? So we're packed in our vehicle and we're driving everywhere and they had a ton of fun and they successfully didn't complain. It was, it was really a joyful trip. One of the temptations to complain was the innumerable times mom or dad said we're stopping, getting out of the vehicle, and taking another picture. We did that a lot. On our way back, Idaho, Wyoming home, we did the one-day rapid tour of Yellowstone. You'd need to do a lot longer than one day. But we were there for a day, and one of the times, probably the you know, eighth or tenth time of the day that we piled out of the van in Yellowstone to take a picture, and we had another eight or ten more to go, was beside the big national park sign that says Continental Divide. I almost put it on the slide for you. The elevation Continental Divide. You guys know what the Continental Divide is? Many of you do, I trust. It's the watershed of North America. Every drop of rain that falls on the top of that divide and goes west, if it doesn't evaporate, circulatory system continues to make its way down into tributaries and rivers and streams, will end up in the Pacific Ocean. Every drop of rain that hits the top of that divide and goes east, if it doesn't evaporate, works its way into the water system, will end up in the Gulf or the Atlantic Ocean. It's the divide, it's the watershed. That range of mountains is the fulcrum of all the water in North America. If a drop of rain falls in Tennessee today and makes its way to the Mississippi before it evaporates, it will not end up in the Pacific. It is bound for the Atlantic. Our text is showing that Jesus because of his oneness with the Father. His union with the Father is the line of demarcation drawn through the heart of every man. The range is already set by God. Its peak is already established. God has installed his king on his holy mountain and he is the dividing line. That's what the text is about. That's the last public word of Jesus to the world in the Gospel of John. He's the fulcrum. He's the line of demarcation. He's the continental divide in your heart between heaven and hell. So our two subpoints are therefore to reject Jesus guarantees eternal judgment or therefore to embrace Jesus by faith guarantees eternal life. First judgment. If you look back in chapter 12, where we began, you'll see in verses 47 to 49, these words of sober judgment. The judgment that will come to all unbelievers is unmistakably owing to what verse 48 calls rejecting Jesus. Verse 48 says, he who rejects me. But what does that rejection manifest in? It's a not receiving his words, verse 48. It is a not keeping his words, verse 47. And the reason that is so consequential is because his words are not his own, but as the missionary par excellence, 
They are the words of the Father who sent him. The sentness of Jesus refers to his absolute dependence on the Father. Down to every syllable he spoke. He never said a phrase too much. He never withheld a phrase that would have been profitable, so therefore never said a phrase too little. Many of us read the Gospels, and unbelievers especially would be unimpressed. This is the one you worship. This is the Redeemer you follow. If he were the Redeemer, I would have expected he would have said, and then you have your own fill-in-the-blank categories. He should have said more of this. He should have said less of that. Do you know that if he would have added or subtracted, he would have been incapable of redeeming you? He revealed God perfectly. The problem is not with him. It's you. It's you. And it's me. His words, if we had ears to hear them, would fall like dew in the springtime on a crisp morning. It would be refreshing and welcome. Unbelievers do not obey God's commandment. Verse 49, what commandment? I know His commandment. I have spoken exactly as He wanted me to speak. Verse 50 says, I didn't speak my own initiative, 49. The Father himself sent me what to say. He's given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. He tells us in the next verse what the commandment is. Eternal life. How can you have eternal life? The burden of the passage is the burden of the book, the Gospel of John. Believe. We read a verse a moment ago in that litany of Jesus being sent, 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 sent. Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God. This is what he requires of you. You have to do this. Believe in him whom he has sent. See in Jesus what all the false religion who have an appreciation for Jesus don't see. See in him this voluntary subordination. He sent, he, 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 he embraced the Father's eternal covenant of redemption to be the one sent to be slain for sinners. He brought that, he embraced that all the way down to earth in his life and perfectly obeyed everything he said. And so in John 6, 29, this is the work of God. This is what God requires of you. Believe. That humbles the pride of man. You can't do anything. You actually have to repent of your doing and get all the way to the end of yourself under the weight of your guilt before God and say, any contribution that I try to bring to help God save me only compounds my guilt. It makes it worse. Every effort that I would try to add to the work of Jesus in order for my redemption to be secured only damns me. The work of God is believe in trust. So if you look at our text, we're saying that the subpoint is therefore to reject Jesus guarantees eternal judgment. You can see that in verse 48. 
He who rejects me does not receive and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. There'll be a huge placard, the words of Jesus, and there will be no escape. Well, he wasn't clear. He didn't, if he just would have said a little, maybe I meant, no, these words are, are clear. The testimony of Jesus is unmistakably clear. For a little while, verse 35 says, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, John 12, 35, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, here it comes. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Then Jesus goes and hides himself from them. Yet they were not, verse 37, believing in him. He's the fulcrum. And you must entrust your whole self to him by faith. The great rebellion of lost people is that they do not render to Jesus what he so rightly deserves. Namely, all of their trust. All of their honor. This is the main message of the Gospel of John. I have written these things, John said, so that you would believe. So, to reject Jesus guarantees eternal judgment, and his words will be the standard by which we are judged on the last day. But I said our second subpoint is to embrace Jesus by faith guarantees eternal life. This is really the whole passage, but first in verses 44 to 47, this passage shows that Jesus perfectly represents God to the world. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. He's the perfect portrait of God. He meticulously carried out his divine assignment, his missionary endeavor to bring the reality of God to a lost and dying world. If the weight of God doesn't rest on your soul when you look at Jesus, you haven't seen him. Verse 44 makes this clear. He who believes in me believes in him who sent me. He's so unified with the Father that to know him is to know his Father, his oneness, his unity, his harmony, his seamlessness, his sameness with God, his sentness from God guarantees that if you rest your faith on him, you are definitely resting your faith on the solid rock of God. Verse 45 amplifies from another angle, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. This, I believe, is John hearkening back to last week's passage where he says, Isaiah saw the glory of the eternal enthroned Christ, the glory of Jesus. He saw his glory and spoke of him, verse 41. Like Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in last week's text, John is saying that Jesus wants you to see his glory now. Glory? Now, I say this, I don't know how else to put it. I keep repeating myself. Fifteen and a half years in, and I just keep saying it the same way. Lord, help me to say it another way. Have you seen the glory of Christ lately? If you see him, you see the one who sent him. That's coming right after 
John highlights Isaiah's vision of Jesus in Isaiah 6. This glory that puts him on his face and causes him to understand the the quantity of redemption that, that God had to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. He's amazed by the glory of Jesus and he's attracted to the glory of Jesus and he obeys. Here am I, send me, because Jesus is so glorious. He's so unified with the Father that to see Jesus is to see his Father. And Jesus makes that plain again a few chapters from now in John 14. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, John, Jesus says to Philip. Verse 46, Jesus comes as light into the world so that everyone who, look at this, believes in me will not remain in darkness. In this passage, there's so much precision from the Holy Spirit. He's not an indefinite article, a light. He's not a definite article, the light. He's just light through and through. I came as light. It's the same thing Jesus had underlined in the previous chapters in John 8. He says, I'm the light of the world. In John 9, I am the light of the world. John has hit this theme over and over again. Earlier in his gospel, he said, here's the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus says, I'm the light. Believe. Believe in me, and you won't remain in darkness. Clearly, that means an entrustedness to Jesus that yields clinging to Him. You hold tight to Him. You don't remain in darkness anymore. You live in the glorious presence of of Christ as your Lord, as your Redeemer. Verse 47, isn't this precious? Concerning believers, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, make no mistake. There's plenty of passages where Jesus Himself talks about judging He will be the judge. The apostles said in the book of Acts, God has appointed through the resurrection of Jesus that he will judge every man through Jesus. First Timothy, Paul says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm, I'm foremost, but he also says in Timothy that Jesus is the final judge. But look at this precious statement. He, He came into the world to save the world. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. This sounds almost identical to what John said earlier in chapter 3. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's the verse right after John 3.16. That's John 3.17. I didn't send my Son, the Father is saying, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Do you see the precious heart of God? If He wanted to condemn us all, I trust that you would agree, if you have any semblance of a biblical understanding of God, I trust that you would agree that God is smarter than we are. And if he wanted to condemn us all, the best thing he could have done is kept his son unharmed in heaven, worshipped by the angels. He wants to save. His heart bursts with desire to save you. Jesus said in verse 47, He came precisely for that purpose. He was dispatched on mission from the Father because He wants to save you. He desires to save you. 
He doesn't want people to continue to live in darkness and rebel against God and be under judgment and finally judged by the word Jesus spoke. He desires to save you. So in his first coming, he came as this tender lamb of God to be the slain sacrifice to take away our sin. And he is coming again to judge. He's going to come as a roaring lion, but in his first coming, he came with this tender heart to bring us, Hebrews 7, to God. Verse 49, because he wants to save us and not judge us, he tells us he never speaks from himself. Never. He's not giving his own best ideas, which would have been perfect. He's depending on the Father relentlessly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want to say it exactly. I want to say it precisely. And he's totally depending on the Spirit to give him the Father's words with precision. Jesus says this repeatedly in John's Gospel. I speak the things as the Father taught me. John 8, 28. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. John 14, 10. But not only did He never speak from Himself, He only and exactly spoke as the Father instructed Him. That's verse 49 and 50. I don't speak on my own initiative. The Father who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. The content and everything about the delivery. And at the end of 50, I speak just as the Father told me. Jesus is saying, and John is letting us know in his final portrait of Jesus publicly to the world, his verse 44, cry to the world. He's letting us know he's the logos. He's the divine speech. He's the word of God. In his person and through his lips, he perfectly reveals God because he is God. You can trust him. So to believers, verse 50, he gives us God's incredible gift of eternal life. That line of demarcation, that continental divide, Jesus is the apex of that and you will fall on this stone. You will either be riveted to him by faith, embrace him into eternal life, or you will be judged by every word that he spoke because he is the perfect quintessential missionary representative of God. So here's our application. It is threefold, and I will leave you with this. There's, there's so much here. Believe upon Jesus. How, how remiss would we be if we get to Jesus' last public final cry? about himself being the line of demarcation and, and, and don't appeal again, believe. We're not here for information dissemination. That's not why I'm here anyway. I don't know why you're here. But I do believe God sent me to say to you, believe. If you presume to have believed and you're not throwing yourself presently on the all-sufficiency of Jesus, then what is your confidence that you did at some point yesteryear believe? 
We unashamedly around here embrace the security of the believer, the eternal security, the old adages, once saved, always saved. We would say it a little differently than that. The preservation of the saints. God holds his people. You cannot be snatched from his hand. That's because God is good at keeping people saved, that he justifies. He's definitely going to glorify every person he justified. That's Romans 8. We believe that through and through. But I'm asking because I presume that most of us are professing Christians. And when I say application one is believe on Jesus, I don't want 95% of the room to tune me out. For the remainder of the Gospel of John, starting next Sunday, John 13, Jesus is only with his disciples. He's eventually jockeyed back and forth through trials, and he's put up on a cross publicly. He rises from the dead, but even after that, he only appears to his disciples. What I'm saying is this is the last chance that the people that are hearing the words that Jesus is speaking in John 12 have. This is it. There's not a tomorrow. It's believe, believe, and believe now. Remember the first time Jesus came, John wants us to know that he came, as I mentioned, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I listened to the book of Leviticus this week. What a bloody book. And John is saying, Jesus is that sacrificial lamb for our sins that does take away our sin. Paul would say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. We're spared from the wrath to come if you'll hide in the ark of Jesus. But notice verse 44. Jesus cried out and said. The next cry Jesus would give would be Matthew 27, 50. The world would not hear Him cry again until they heard him cry out with a loud voice and yield up his spirit. This is, this is quite literally the last chance for those who at this point were rejecting Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus wants to save you. That's why he came. I didn't come to judge but to save. If you're not a Christian today, I understand that a lot of our truth claims sound strange. I get that. We're saying that God himself came through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He died on a Roman cross like a lot of other people did, but he died in a way that allowed him to substitute for us as a sacrifice that takes away our sin. And after he died and was buried, I understand it sounds strange that we're saying he literally, actually, physically, bodily rose from the dead, appeared to a bunch of people, 1 Corinthians says over 500 people at one time and then ascended to heaven. I understand that sounds strange. I understand that it sounds maybe doubly strange, maybe borderline ridiculous to those who, who don't believe what I just said, that we would say that unless you entrust your soul to him entirely, you'll perish forever. I, I'm not disparaging you when I say I get that it may sound strange to some of you. But like Noah built a boat and everybody thought he was crazy. And the whole time he's building his ark, he's preaching. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. And nobody thought judgment was coming. And everybody thought Noah was weird. Eventually the rains came 
and only eight people survived. That's what John's doing at the end of chapter 12. He's building a boat. It's Jesus' last cry to the world. And he's saying, get in the boat. Get in the boat. As weird as it may sound, we love you enough to tell you the truth. The wrath of God is coming, and Jesus is the only refuge from God's just wrath. It's not right for God not to punish sin. It would compromise his character. To put it bluntly, he would have to forfeit being God. He can't remain God and be soft on sin. It's a violation of his honor and his holiness. But God alone knows a way to uphold his integrity and save your soul. Because Jesus is wonderful. Jesus, as relates to God, is truly divine. As relates to man, is truly human. And he could go to the cross and grab, as it were, a lost and dying world and all the honor of the Father and cause them to kiss if you'll put your faith in him. Lloyd-Jones said, old preacher from Europe, now in heaven, from beginning to end, the message of the Bible is that there is to be an end of the world and that the end is judgment. The Christ of God will come back into this world and he will return to judge it. The world is under judgment. It is going to perish. All that is opposed to God is going to be judged and is going to be destroyed. There is a day coming when astonished humanity is going to hear this cry, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Jesus is coming back to do that. And the way you become a child of God, our text tells us, verse 36 and verse 46, believe. By faith you are saved. By grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Believe on Jesus. That's the work of God. John 6, 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Verse 36 says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes will not remain in darkness. That's how you are transferred. It is through faith in Christ alone. So the first Application is believe. The second is obey. Verse 47 says, if you hear Jesus' words and do not keep them, you'll be judged on the last day. How is it going with your slavery today? Are you obeying your master? What areas of your life are willfully out of compliance with the lordship of Jesus? Where are you saying functionally? I don't care what you said, Jesus. I'm going to do it my way. Anyone who hears my saying and does not keep them, you're on a fast track to judgment. Let, let's not presume on God's mercies. He's so gracious, he'll forgive you in a nanosecond if you'll throw your heart upon him in true repentance. He'll empower you by the Holy Spirit to progressively grow in obedience. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. You come to him and he does the cleaning but our love to Jesus is undoubtedly manifested in our obedience to him. Jesus said in John's gospel, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How is it going with your obedience? Finally, not only believe and obey, but tell the world. 
Have you told anybody the glorious good news of the gospel lately? Satan's always lulling us to sleep. He's always playing the serpent's flute and snake charming and trying to just get us numb to the fact that this world is perishing all around us. Do what John did. John wrote this book because he wanted us to sit in a room like this if Jesus tarried. He didn't know. But if Jesus tarried, he wanted us to sit in a room and read about and hear about the saving mercies of God to us in Christ. Evangelize, preach, witness. Do what Jesus did as the great missionary and bring God to lost people. Preach, tell the gospel. I give you all those verses about sent, 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 sent. I'll leave you with this one. John 20, 21. The risen Jesus got his disciples together and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, apostello, I send you, pimpo. Same word in our text. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. How did the Father send him? In total dependence, speaking the Father's words, obeying the Father's commands, telling others about God's great heart for them and why he sent Christ to save and not to judge. Jesus is sending his people that way. You are sent ones. You are, in that sense, a missionary. You are on mission with God to get the gospel of Jesus Christ near and far to our neighbors and to the nations. And so I don't want to guilt you by saying, how long has it been? I do want to help you. How long has it been since your lips have told the good news of the gospel to a lost person? Somebody told you And you're not the end of all God's saving purposes. He wasn't finished when he got to you or to me. He welcomes us into his arsenal to be ambassadors for Christ. And we are to beg people on God's behalf, be reconciled to him through Christ. So here's the conclusion. Somebody's final, sometimes final words have a way of sticking with us. And I believe what John wants to do at the close of the book of signs, when Jesus ends his public ministry, is to say loud and clear, cried out, not whispered, cried out, that he came to save. He alone is the Savior of the world, so united to God that God is pleased that he be the divide that runs right down through the middle of every human heart. He is the Savior without whom everyone will perish and in whom everyone gets verse 50, eternal life. What should you do? Believe and live. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I'm embarrassed at how little we scratched into this glorious revelation at the end of John 12. But I do pray you would elevate in every mind and heart anything that has been said that was faithful. And you would erase from every mind and heart anything that was unfaithful. And you would cause us, on the basis of your word and of your son and of his risen victory, to receive him by faith and to obey him by the Spirit's power. Thank you for sending us as you sent him cause us to help one another live sent we pray in jesus name amen